This is for the nerds, this is for the brainiacs, this is what we deserve. Go ahead and play it back, you ain't gonna touch me, you not gonna do nothing, you are not above me, I bet you wish you was me, I know it, I know. What's up everybody, welcome to another episode of the Only Friends podcast. As you can see, I'm joining you remotely today from the murky waters of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Not exactly the weather I was hoping for. It's kind of caught in between winter and spring right now. It's rainy, to be expected. Uh, it's chilly, but not cold enough to snow, which means I can't go snowboarding. And it's not warm enough for me to be outside, which means I'm here with all of you. Uh, joined, as always, by the usual cast of characters, Melissa, Landon, Lamana, Conrad, Andre, behind the scenes. And then as always, my co-host, holding it down for me in the studio, Christian Soto. I'm just so happy that Melissa's here. There were so many rumors yesterday that I had to address. They were like, <laughs> they're like, where's Melissa? Does she, does she not like Swan? Zwan? <laughs> Schwan, Schwan. 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 Does she not like Schwan? No, I was and I was sleeping. like, nah, I don't think so. Who like, said that? A lot of people were <laughs> like, the oh, people. She, she, were you does she me? not like, does she feel like she's going to be overshadowed as a no woman? No said that. Like, I'm, like, I'm like, damn. I'm like, no like oh, is there that. like a cat match? I'm like, listen, the cat match no, is No, I was having a scandalous like, dream and I, I didn't wake up. No, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 what mean, do you I mean you don't back. know? <laughs> I had your back, but like I had a little bit of suspicion too. I was like, this I was is, like, wait, this is nobody said odd. this. I was very scared to try. Are we, to are we bringing up this dream? Or are we, no, are we no, no, we can't bring this dream up. <laughs> <laughs> what are you you can talk about it. I can't say who it is. Wait, I don't no, know. No, you, you can you can leave the names and faces anonymous, but uh, there, there was, was a little something going on I was having a scandalous dream, and it's hard to wake me up from those. Wait, I just realized that they gave y'all my camera. Did, did, did yeah. I, do I have the trash camera now? <laughs> What's <laughs> what happening? Camera? My camera is not. No, no, I protest. <laughs> They have my camera, not your camera. Oh, so you get the His best His camera. camera's definitely worse. My camera definitely camera. did not improve. <laughs> Look at that camera. <laughs> what happened to my camera? It's the same one. And no, it's the same one that was Swan, on me when I Swan was Swan took it. <laughs> Swan. <laughs> this is nuts. Anyway, glad to have you, Burke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyways. We're not going over this dream. Melissa? What? Cheating. I was trying to read the chat. The dream. Oh, the dream? The I dream. can't. What do you want me to say? Berkey's putting me on the spot. He knows what it's about. <laughs> I can't say who it is. <laughs> Gonna get let's, me just say, let's just say it was a very attractive poker player. Could have been male. Could have been female. Who knows? But it had her in a tizzy to the point where Landon destroying a heavy bag directly below her floor could not wake her up in time for the podcast. I was very scared. I didn't want to get like killed or yelled at or screamed at so i tried like knocking on the door being like oh like we have to go to the podcast (laughs) and then i didn't hear anything and i was like i'm not gonna try any farther than this at least like not actively so i passively was downstairs under where her room was and started kicking the the punching bag we have in the garage hoping that the chains would rattle and that would wake her up by proxy 
That seems like you, a safe. That you, seems safer for me yes. and my own sanity and my own health than trying to enter the room and wake her up. I have a question. I have, I have two questions. questions. <laughs> I, I have two questions. Number one, questions. did you actually knock on the door? Yes. That was my question. I did. It was very soft, but yeah, it was done. Yeah, he, he did it okay. in like a passive way. You for didn't, sure. you didn't right. knock he with went the like, intention to wake her and up. And he didn't touch the door. He I, just I, I like touched this. the door. I, I went like this. And then she didn't answer. I said, I Melissa. And then you didn't hear it? Well, I heard it. I knew what I did. Uh, okay, and then my second question, my follow-up question, and this is a, a bigger a bigger spectrum question because I think it matters a lot. Uh, as Landon was telling me that you could not wake up, I was concerned. I thought you might be dead or dying. No, or I, I don't die. Uh, something thereof. Um, not yet. Based on her snake? Well, the snake could have consumed her for all I know. I have no idea. Uh, but I basically said, look, you need to go in there and make sure that she's not incapacitated. And he just goes, if she's dead, there's nothing I can do about it. What if I was like, what if I was like almost dead and you could have saved me and then like you just didn't because you were scared? I'd have to live with that. Yeah. <laughs> you have your phone on you all the time, so... There is no message. There's no message. Talk about the scandalous dream for at least 10 minutes. <laughs> That's what someone said. <laughs> I don't even remember what was happening. It was mostly just the situation was scandalous. Like, it wasn't anything graphic. Just the okay. We'll, we'll let you have your privacy. It's okay. Um, That's for my time. I don't, I don't know if I'm still <laughs> echoing or not, but Andre, uh, that might be something worth monitoring. Um, the chat. It's because you're on speaker. Yeah, possibly. But so was Schwann. It seems like it was okay. Uh, anyway, we'll just move forward as if everything is peachy dandy. Uh, and uh, get into kind of today's bigger topics. So first thing of note is that uh, I'm talking, I'm not on camera. But second thing of note is that uh, Dallas TCH or TCH Dallas, Texas Cardhouse Dallas, won their appeal today to be able to operate in uh, the greater Dallas area. I I'm not exactly sure how they zone it, but whatever it is, their um, their property is now allowed to be in full operation again. So I think that they had been shut down uh, for a brief period of time where uh, the authorities basically came in and said that this doesn't fly here. Uh, it looks like they won that appeal. And this is big news for a lot of reasons um, outside of just TCH, uh, but more so for Texas poker as a whole. So there has been a lot of talks for people trying, or I guess other rooms attempting to get into Dallas, ourselves included. We uh, had a partnership in place with uh, one of the smaller rooms in Austin, and it was contingent on us being able to get into Dallas. And it looked like those dreams were all but dead. Uh, I know that there are a few other places that are looking to uh, get into that market. I think Mattisau and Helmuth have a partnership with a card house that's already established in Dallas. And I believe uh, Polk's plans with the Lodge are to move into other cities as well. And then finally, Champions, which was operating only out of Houston and closed towards the end of the pandemic, uh, also had huge expansion plans uh, for Dallas. Like uh, I saw some of them. It was unbelievable. Like this gorgeous multi-layer 
uh, or multi-floor room with the ability to house like 60 or 70 tables. Just just a pretty crazy build-out. Um, what do we think as far as the bigger picture for, for the Texas market? I mean, Dallas is a pretty huge city, and a lot of the grumblings were that this was never going to happen because of all the lobbying from uh, the reservations in Oklahoma that don't want to see legalized gambling happen in Texas, <clears throat> as well as uh, it just being a very conservative state and the politics kind of leaning that way. So, uh, Christian, I guess, give me your opinion first. Well, I guess that news means software-wise back in the bidding market for a couple of rooms, right, Burke? You know? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go that far, but I'm <laughs> why not? I mean, we're back in the market. This is big news for software wide, but software wide. Throw us your offers, people, and we'll see what we can do. You know, we can pay in Bitcoin. But uh, anyway, I think I don't know. I'm pretty torn on this, and I think we had this conversation before, like off camera, where I think the the biggest threat they have is casinos. Like casinos definitely want to enter Texas, and that's been a back and forth for a while, and I think. They're lobbying pretty hard, um, especially after the, like the uh, uh, his name is slipping, but the Venetian owner uh, died. Like they've been pushing pretty hard ever since then. So I think that's their biggest threat. Sheldon Adelson. Uh, yeah, Sheldon. Yeah, Adelson. Um, so I think that's their biggest threat. And this is, I guess, a small win, but I don't think the fight is over in Texas. I think the fight will be over once the casino situation is completely solidified. And I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So back to you guys. Yeah, do you guys have any... I, I mean, Landon, you're about to go to Texas. Uh, I think you're heading to Houston, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, you, you've spent a fair amount of time in this, uh, let, let's call it, local economy. What do you think as far as the growth potential um, for the state as a whole and then in your opinion, uh, do you think that these card houses are safe? Do you think that they're a, a good environment to play in? Or like, <clears throat> would you prefer something closer to a casino? So to be pretty honest, when it comes to my uh, experiences, when it comes to playing in a card house versus a casino, I don't really see much of a difference in the sense of like, there's no other forms of gambling besides just poker and for me personally that never really mattered like going to a casino versus staying there like i've always felt pretty safe and secure being there and it seems like people in texas really love poker like there's a lot of there's always business going around and the games are really good and it seems like a net positive for poker as a whole for things to kind of stay the way they are at least from what I've seen when it comes to the security in Texas card rooms, like I've never really felt either scared or like I wouldn't get paid out or anything like that. So yeah, but I there have like, been events. There have been now multiple events where it's, yeah, there's been events it, everywhere. No, I understand, but not events where like people don't get paid. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, that, that was some, yeah, that's a bad one. That's, that's the a silver big, one. No, the one no, with Johnny no, Chan. Johnny Jan. Yeah. Like, I that, prefer like, that's, playing that's a big problem. Like if, if, it didn't end up getting paid, right? Uh, well, it got I, I think new, out, partner, right? new owners came in. Yeah, but that's 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 still a problem, right? Like it's you can't cash out your money, and if people can just kind of shut down business at any time, and just or not even shut down, just say like, hey, like we're only paying out two thousand dollars a day, and then one day they they just like close the doors, and there's really no 
like path to getting your money because they're kind of operating in a gray area. I think that needs to get solved also. You Oof. think it's better for the poker ecosystem to have casinos or, or card houses? It seems like the casinos themselves um, are just always going to be a little bit more safer, a little bit more secure. Well, there's pros. I, in my opinion, there's pros and cons. So yeah, oh, the pros sure. of the card house is that there's less red tape. If you want right. to get something done, if you want to like change something it could be done rather easily right like when we're talking about texas poker austin like i'm pretty sure doug polk would just like make a decision and things will just kind of get done mm -hmm. whereas like in a casino that can't happen go from the, but the in top exchange the, yeah like what happens in johnny chan's uh house right that won't happen at the bellagio like it just won't happen right yeah. you have you have nevada, nevada gaming kind of like helping you out if something goes wrong so there's pros and cons on both sides would i rather have a casino there I honestly don't know. I, I think that's something we have to kind of flesh out altogether. You think it's better for the, the games in, in, in uh, Texas? It's like if you have a casino, then you might have more random people that are just coming to gamble to, yeah, to that's play always, poker that's, as, that's always as opposed kind to people just forth. going to play poker. I feel like it might balance yeah. out, though, because then you also have money leaving the poker room to go. Yeah, no, that's hit. true. Right. So it's like, I don't know, maybe it balances out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure people that are like play for fun, kind of mix it up between playing different games and then going playing poker and then either playing poker, going somewhere else and coming back. And yeah, it, that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. Like, especially with Baccarat. Right, just like I, bouncing around. So everywhere. Like, let, me, let me lay out a few points here and I'm gonna ask each of you uh, a couple of different questions. So first and foremost, uh, when we're talking about the pros and cons of, of these rooms, Christian brought up a very valid point when we're talking about uh, the safety of your funds, right? So this is the first point that I want to address, but I think that there are others that we need to consider. So first and foremost, if funds are not guaranteed, which obviously they're not, uh, we basically create this rug-like economy that we see in NFTs and the crypto space at, at a pretty high frequency. And there's no security here whatsoever, right? So um, basically, it's a, it's a one-way transaction where when you go to the window, you are going to give them money always. They're always going to want you to post where uh in order to get chips but you don't necessarily know that you can cash out and return and this happens in the private game scene a lot as well where you get slow paid or no paid uh so i i'm gonna ask melissa first and then christian because you two have the most experience of this in two different realms melissa with nfts and christian with uh private games what what upside do you need to incur in order to take on that level of a risk as a consumer um i mean with nfts like not that much <laughs> because there's just so many that um it sort of evens out like the the initial is never really that high so you only really need one to not rug in order to break even and two to make money in my opinion so i don't know it's sort right. of different so basically so it's kind of like asymmetric upside, right? Yeah. Like when you're risking very little and you, you have a lot to gain. Yeah. Okay, so that stands to lend itself that uh, if the games are really truly this soft, then the player pool is probably doing okay. Uh, and th there's another aspect to this that I'll address after I ask Christian. What do you think uh, with regard to private games where slow pay, no pay is not all that uncommon? What, what do you look for whenever you are, are entering these scenarios, if you think there's a high probability that you won't get your money in short order? 
Well, the first one is there's a big difference between slow pay and no pay, right? Um, slow pay is like, okay, how reputable is this person? Even though I might get paid slowly, like, is that okay with me? Right? Like, okay, that's step one, as well as like, are, if you're okay with getting slow paid, you're probably going to get some invites again. Now, the decision of taking the seat or not really revolves around the EV of the spot, right? So it's like, okay, what's our upside versus the risk of getting paid slowly? If, so it's like, yeah, if, if I'm sitting with a table full of VIPs, then it's like, okay, I guess I'll take the risk of, because the EV spot is too high, I might not see a spot like this for another, you know, couple of weeks or a month. If the spot is less good, then you just don't take the spot, right? So. Unfortunately, kind of what I'm seeing with like, I think the Landon argument isn't as strong because when he goes or, or when any of us go, like it's often promoted, right? It's often a situation yeah, right. where like they created this almost artificial environment that doesn't exist every day, right? It's like when you see a, a live stream, those games don't exist every day. Uh, so we don't get to see the true scope of like the daily uh operations of these of these games uh day in and day out so it's like a little unfair for us to comment based on what we've seen i think it's like one of those things where it's like it's probably just like a normal room where you're probably seeing you know five i don't know what the lodge numbers are but let's just say on average between all the rooms you're probably seeing like five to ten one two to one three games five to ten two five games and then one or two uh five ten games Right. Like that's yeah. that's going to be the average, I think. And then when there's a promotion, you're going to see more games. But yeah, in regards to like EV exchange, that's that's really all we're talking about. Like risk, 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 reward. Your reward has to be like pretty high to sit in a private game where you're very likely to be slow paid based on the reputation of of the host. I mean, I right. want so to bring that. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I went and played um, just one three, like the match stack there. And I didn't have any moment where i felt like it was shady or anything yeah I, I played it like a couple different places um in was it houston i yeah it was houston yeah and um I, it was i actually prefer the the card house way better than a casino it's just way quieter and everyone's there to only play poker so you don't get as many like drunk people puking in the bathroom and you know like just kind of create and even though that's good for the game generally the games are just really good anyway so everyone wants to play big and it, mm. it also kind of creates like a home game and, yeah you know, it and felt like everybody's very, very close and like mm -hmm. it was very friendly i don't so, know i enjoyed it so i'll but, kind of bring this full circle and and explain why i think card houses are really great uh in one aspect and really dangerous in another uh what we didn't mention here is the rake Right. So when you're looking at private games, uh, one of the first things that you need to consider is the tax because they're generally incredibly high. And whether or not you get paid will often be corollary to how much rake they're taking. The higher the rake, the higher the probability you're getting paid, but also the more that's cutting into your win rate. Right. The big thing that is uh, so beneficial about these card houses is that the rake is uh, it's time rake. And it's re incredibly low, incredibly low. Like there's no place on earth outside of online that you'll pay less rake than in Texas. And that is 
incredibly beneficial for one specific subset of of the poker ecosystem and that's low stakes right so now you get to play one three two five without really any rake implications whatsoever and the only risk that you're running is to get rugged but the games are small enough where sure relative to um the the bankrolls at that level it may be a big deal to like get rugged out of 3k or 5k or something along those lines but big picture it doesn't really matter one bit to uh any one individual or even that that ecosystem as a whole right like the poker ecosystem won't collapse if you rug the low stakes um and and neither will those players like they'll be able to replenish so they'll recover uh lastly there's the security risk right and that's going to pivot me into why i think these card houses are so dangerous uh not so much for the low and mid stakes because there isn't a lot of money to take but like christian was saying when we're in town we're there on an advertisement basis where we're bringing a bunch of new blood into the doors and with it higher stakes so now all of a sudden we're running 510 plus a lot of times we're running like 1025 plus and we've even ran uh, as big as 51-2 when we were in Houston for a live stream game. This is really problematic for a couple very strong reasons. Number one, there is very minimal security here. This isn't, uh, well, the, it's not, you know what? There isn't that much security in a casino either for what it's worth. Like you're, you're not very protected gambling for high stakes in a casino. Uh, they don't like insure your chips. I know like if you leave your chips on the table and go to the bathroom and somebody walks by and just steals them, you're liable. And also if you put them in your pocket and go to the bathroom and somebody mugs you on the way, you're liable. So there's like really no safe way of protecting it other than it's just a massive uh, organization that does have some security measures in place. And generally speaking, people don't attempt to rob casinos. But... When you look at these smaller card houses, they're a lot more ripe for the picking. It's a lot less square footage. Um, the money is all concentrated into one very specific area. And uh, the security is very minimal, right? It's just a hired armed guard usually mm -hmm. that may or may not be in a position to do something about it. And uh, I think for this article that Andre just showed, it was a, a Houston guard uh, in a small room where a guy came in the back, probably an inside job. He didn't even, he, he wasn't even armed. Uh, no, he like wrestled an AK away from the intruder, but you know, this guy put his life on the line for what? 25 bucks an hour, something along those lines. It, it it's relatively insane. Uh, so the, the, the danger goes way up now, how this parallels to, uh, bigger, bigger state games is that no one <laughs> who plays like above 510 should want to be playing in these card rooms. Uh, there's just asymmetric risk to the upside with the exception of the games being soft, but you're just better served to take these or to curate these soft games, either in a casino environment or I guess in a home game environment. I'm not really sure what's more likely to, to get robbed. Maybe, maybe it is, uh, no, I don't know, man. I, I think you could just put forth more security measures in um, in a home game environment. Like, it's it's much smaller. It's more controlled. There isn't any, you know, you're not mixing 1-3 players with 100-200 players. So there isn't this... Right. Um, Less like people openness. know about it, too, right? Less people know about it. You're yeah. Not, like, like you said, you guys promote these 
when I mean, it's hard. It, it's hard. Go to them. It, I mean, I'm sure it could be done. I'm not a professional thief, but like, if if <laughs> in, in a high rise where you're on the on the 45th floor with a security guard and to let you up, yeah, yeah, it, it's like yeah, it, it, exactly. Like someone has to let you up. Like it's really there's a lot of like barriers to entry to like rob one of these places. Could it be done? Of course, it could be done. Um, I, you know. I, it's always I, an inside job. Yeah, it it's is. always some sort of inside job because in that situation. But at the end of the day, like, if I had to pick a spot, it's probably not going to be, you know, one of these high-rise condos where I have to go through the front desk and they have to know who, where I'm going and all these things. And then there's a security guard with a gun in the fucking place, too. And it's like, okay, I'm, not, I'm just going to stay out of that one. You know, I'd rather just, like, well, my, they, my man that's getting paid $25 an hour at the, at the, at the little uh, strip mall, that, that seems like a nice one. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing is that home <laughs> games can be cashless, Correct. where uh, yeah. the strip mall can't, right? And, and that's really problematic as well. So, yeah, I think that, like, if we divide the ecosystem in two, uh, there's no incentive whatsoever for mid to high state games to play in these, in these uh, pretty insecure areas. Uh, not just for the security reason, but they're also the most viable to get rugged, right? Like, if at any given time a room like, say, Johnny Chan's, is running uh, just one three and two five. There's probably no more than like a hundred thousand dollars total in the in the room, right? That's high. But now, high. say suddenly that they get a twenty five fifty and a one hundred two hundred game going at the same time. Well, between those two games, there might be like a half a million to a million dollars mm. in the room. I mean, realistically, right? like, this... how often is this actually happening? Like, realistically, is it actually something people should be concerned about, or is it just sort of story? Um, well, the Johnny Chan room was the most recent, but I think that there have been like a lot of more boutique rooms, uh, that may have just like, they just collapsed. Yeah. And that's not to say that their clientele didn't get paid. I'm, I, I'm not sure enough to know, but I do know that those are the ones that you have the biggest risk with, right? Where it's only a five or six table room. Well, I um, think there's, sorry to cut you off, Bergie. I think there's also no, like a correlation. Like think about in the high rate private games, you're very likely to get paid. But like, as we're saying, these Texas rooms rake extremely low. So their margins are extreme. They're very narrow. So right. if you have poor management, this thing just falls like pretty quickly because the mar since the margins are so narrow in these situations, you see a lot of rooms close. Uh, you see a lot of rooms go, go, go under and they're, they're underwater for a very long time. And that's just a, a risk that we have to kind of Someone in the chat actually account. brought up a good point that Texas uh, is a very, uh, people are very well armed personally in Texas. <laughs> I would have to guess not that in that, rooms. not in the rooms. They can't be strapped in they, the room. Yeah, they make you walk through a metal detector. Okay. So that doesn't really have any bearing. Not, yeah, not, not very helpful in, in this particular instance. I'm sure that they check a bunch of firearms at the front desk. <laughs> Yeah. Firearms here. Straight up rifle at the front right. desk. I mean, like AR just, they just pistols. have their daily carries. Someone's got a bazooka. Yeah, I just think it's something we need to consider, right? It's not you know, it's just something we need to consider. The the margins are are pretty low if they're if the management's poor, things are underwater for a long time and there's just a higher probability of getting rugged. And I, I think yeah, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's uh the saturation of the market that worries me the uh the vo the sheer volume of small rooms that's cropping up trying to make you know 30 40 50,000 a year 
they're just going to be the least secure. They're going to have the worst management. Um, they're just going to be operating on the skinniest margins. And like the second that they go underwater, they can just close doors and never give anybody their money. Yeah. I mean, chips are property of the place that you bought them from. Not really yours. Heard that before. Right. Shout out to the people stealing the $1 chips. I mean, uh, like, what, Berkey, would you feel comfortable if, like, you were in LA and you had cash and someone's like, here, I'll, I'll exchange. Can you buy these uh, 5K flags from can you buy this these Texas JPEGs? room? <laughs> would, would you feel comfortable exchanging? No. But would you feel no, comfortable exchanging I, I mean, Bellagio, right? Yeah. You, you would be like, okay, I'll take, I'll take two flags off you from Bellagio. No problem. But you wouldn't feel comfortable right. exchanging some Texas room flags. What if? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're speaking to the insecurity of it all. Right. I was also thinking about what? something. I'm pretty sure there was no um, metal detector at the lodge. <laughs> Are you good? You good? <laughs> he just said he thinks there's no metal detector at the lodge. So there's strategy. No, but Andre, Andre was like waiting to talk. Uh, I think that there was. I'm almost positive there was. There 100% was in all the rooms in Houston. Um, and there almost certainly was at tch i've never been to the lodge so i don't know but i know for sure all the houston rooms uh had metal detectors and i would assume that the bigger rooms in austin do as well but yeah the one i went to in houston had one you'd like walk through it and stuff before yeah it's just at the entrance yeah would you feel more comfortable if these card rooms had like some sort of insurance that there were very um, transparent about so like if everybody anybody actually did get rugged they would be able to pay out i would feel a lot more comfortable uh i would also feel more comfortable if they did like a cashless system of sorts uh but even yeah. that doesn't really protect you right because you always have to be the one posting so they're never at risk which i think is the scariest thing uh, it's kind of like full tilt, not separating their liquidity pool back in the day. We just kind of get ourselves in a situation where we're funneling a bunch of money in and then trusting that the third-party operator is going to do right by us. Why do people say bud when they want to be, like, passive-aggressive? You know, like, <laughs> bud. I'm like, I'm, like, reading the chat. They're like, okay, bud. I'm like, whoa, chill out, bro. Like, this is the most aggressive. Chins <laughs> replying to him in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jake. Hi, <laughs> bro. I mean, all right. I mean, I, I mean, no. I mean, right, people are saying to, like to address to address what what Christian's talking about. Jake is basically saying this is a dumb take because people rob casinos all the time. Like, yeah, that's different. They rob the actual casino. They don't walk into a poker room and take chips off the table. So you personally are not getting robbed. It doesn't matter if they take money from the cage or if they steal a bunch of chips off the backrat table. It's really rare that they're going to walk in and personally rob people, uh, which is very different than somebody walking into a card room taking all of their liquidity and then them saying like sorry we can't pay right and the take that i was saying in regards to like the high rise and 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 the security guard in the in the high rise you know the the personal higher security guard for the game in the high rise instead of the, the one in the strip mall i'm not saying that one is going to do more than the other i'm just saying the barriers of Daniel Nagri was staying at MGM National Harbor different. Casino Hotel last Sorry, August. Guys. What oh, in the hell? That. 
but yeah the barrier of entry to the to the high-rise condo is just higher there's you have to go through the front desk you have to get up let up let up by the front desk up to where you're going like there's a security guard at the condo it's a sm much smaller controlled environment that's all i'm saying i'm not saying one i'd rather take one security guard or the other even though i've seen some yeah. security guards in these private games they're like navy seals up in there. <laughs> la mana uh la mana was robbed at gunpoint when we were young i think this was like oh five oh six that it right? was yeah it was yeah i think it was uh at least let you keep those glasses it was um it was pretty scary we were playing there was like four tables most i think they were mostly five ten games and um there's probably a hundred thousand in the room or so and three guys come running in you got ak-47s and they're just like everybody get on the ground we got on the ground <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like i had like two thousand on me and they were just like take your money out and just hold it up and don't lift your head and like okay exactly what they said they were in and out probably six seven minutes probably took about a hundred thousand dollars or so and we're going it was definitely i would assume an inside job um because the way the um the building was set up is there was like two doors you had to get into right it was very secure in the front problem was there was like the back there was like this giant fence around the outside and they like cut a hole through the fence like it was like a, a chain link fence or something something easy to get through went through the back and then up around the, the the back side the back door and came in it was uh yeah, it was crazy but yeah they they hit one of the fire all, fire halls that same year uh i don't mm -hmm. know if you remember uh the couple that used to deal and play i can't recall his name right now but uh he was at the fire hall game uh with our buddy john ford who also got robbed and somehow this idiot is getting robbed at gunpoint with people holding ak's and managed to stuff 5k in his sock while they were like forcing Are these everybody guys onto all the armed with AKs. Are you sure they're AKs? It's okay, really so specific. in my mind it was AK. It was definitely a a lot like rifles. it looked like a machine gun and at the time I mean so I'm pretty sure it was AK. We got a gun educator in this room. <laughs> we got astrology, we have gun education. Yeah, we're going to have it all. Don't worry, in the I got world. you guys. I mean pistols aren't very threatening. Like yeah, but AK, it's just, it's just a, I'm just being a terminology, whatever, go on. It's, <laughs> terminology. Not, yeah, no one uses gunsmith anymore. Yeah. We don't use that stuff. <laughs> Semi-automatic. Uh, all right, so what's, what's our final take? Like, what's our final take here? Well, my final take, I guess, is that this is big news for Texas poker as a whole, but uh, I think that, you know, this, whether or not this stemmed from lobbyists uh, or, like, uh, the desire to start to uh, build casinos in Texas or whatever the case may be, what the underlying tone is from the citizens and potentially from those who are really trying to shut the doors is that these places aren't safe and that they promote crime. And this is one instance where I don't necessarily know that I have uh, a strong opinion against that. Uh, I think that there's maybe a reasonable call to action where the stakes like i wouldn't mind seeing the stakes ran in these rooms uh being capped at like call it 510 or call it 25 and i don't even think that that's that bad for the ecosystem um games would obviously just play as big as people want them to they would throw straddles on or whatever to work around it but uh i worry that i i, I worry about scenarios where there's a ton of liquidity in the room and i'm really speaking from the experiences that we had where we get we get called in 
and they build these huge games around us. And like, you know, we have 50, 100,000 on us in cash. Yeah. And the best they can offer us is an escort from the car to back and back without like any ability to house the money in, in the casino anywhere. Uh, there's like no ability to protect the game while we're in it. Yeah, there's I mean, they, some now, of these places, right? Some of these places have like little lockers in the back, but like that's, I'm not gonna put a hundred hundred k in a little locker in the back and just go home with no real yeah, security. Like it, yeah, right. It's like these. It, it was like these shitty little lockers that you would see at a skating arena or a skating rink that you would put your shoes in while you're while mm -hmm. you're out there on the floor. You know, it's like I'm not trusting my money here. This is insane. And then, like, even if you keep it all in chips, uh, it's like, how safe is six figures in cash? Like, you might represent 20% of their overall liquidity whenever you're handing them 100K in cash, right? And now they're just, like, what, putting it behind a desk? It's not like it's the most safe and secure place. And what better time for an inside job to just happen to hit the place that had an influx of 20 or 30% liquidity in one night? Yeah, that's rough. All right. We're in the market. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's something there. I just think that uh, it's going to require, um, like, we're in the early stages of it, right? It, it's just going to require a lot of growth and a lot more secure measures to take place, uh, both from the operational side, where the money is insured, and from the uh, the day-to-day -day operation side. But do, we think, the, do we think that oh, casinos could just, like, wipe out that market, though? In, in an instant, in an instant, if licensing, uh, if a gaming organization is developed uh, by the Texas government or licensing is necessary, uh, you're going to see like the Fertitas of the world come in and just bulldoze all of these cities, right? Like he's just going to put the golden nugget in Dallas, Austin and uh, Houston and just be done with it. There's so much space for like huge resort. Texas, mm -hmm. it's just like an untapped gold mine. Yeah. That that's my fear with these hard rooms. I just don't. I think if casinos get into Texas, which they've been lobbying for, I think I think they're just done. Like it's over. I don't, I don't see them surviving because casinos are not going to want this competition. So they're going to do everything in their power to just wipe them out one way or another. Either well, that's when like, it gets scary. Yeah, that's when it gets scary, right? Because you have to be able to exit now with positive liquidity, and that's where I'm saying like a lot of these small rooms. If that were to happen, they may just operate too long. And not be able to pay. All right. Your mic isn't on. That better? Sorry. Yep. So I think you guys are identifying something that's really important, which is I think all of you guys, especially like Conrad, uh, Brian, you obviously, Berkey, Chin, uh, you guys grew up in that era where you had these like unregulated card houses and they got robbed a lot. You know, I know Conrad yeah. has gotten a gun pointed at him multiple times. Um, and the, I guess the main question is, okay, now that we have regulated card houses in Texas and they're scaling pretty fast, faster than I think the regulation can keep up, um, mm -hmm. you know, what safeguards are in place to make sure that they're operating as safely as we feel a casino is right like you get robbed at a casino um one there's like less likeliness of it don't get me wrong it could happen but you know if we just we just keep this system for infinite time 
which place is going to be robbed the most? It's definitely going to be these card houses. It's definitely going to be the card houses because as they grow, the security is probably not going to. Um, right off the bat, you can see it like in old school New York games like Straddle and well, Straddle being number one, um, where they got robbed. It was like, I don't know. I've never been there, but I, from what I hear, it was like 30, 40 tables and they got robbed. Somebody got shot and yeah, it was the end of it. Yeah, but, New York changed their entire business model. Like it was like Straddles, PlayStation, these places were huge card rooms. They were similar to, to the lodge. Like you had a lot of tables, but security was really hard. Like people were getting robbed, you know, raids were happening all the time, all these things. And then now what you see in New York, right, Conrad, is like these like one to two table establishments because they're just easier to manage. Most pl places don't even have more than three tables. Yeah. Like ever. Yeah. And that makes sense. That manages the liquidity pool. All right. Moving on to uh, the next conversation topic of conversation uh gg poker announces today dispelling all rumors that dan blazarian had been fired from their organization they doubled down and said dan blazarian remains a partner we'd like to confirm this we'll continue to work closely with dan to engage with new player communities and grow our favorite game expect to hear about some new and exciting partnership activities in the coming months so this is uh Replies very well. strange so Go Melissa ahead. didn't come for a swan, but definitely came for the Dan Bilzerian. <laughs> I uh, okay, would have loved okay, to come see this. for swan, not swan. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love her. I would have loved to come for that. But I was having a dream. <laughs> taking precedent over everything else. If, if I know swan, she would understand. Yeah, she would get it. All right, so, so Gigi. It's forgivable. It's interesting that they decided to make this clear. Like what? Also, well, the timing is way after all of the like you know buzz was around. Right. They could have they could have just easily said like no, kind we're still weird. doing business together. Right. The day of that day, yeah. Yeah. It, it was kind of strange that they waited a little, or maybe they were still in like negotiations. Yeah, or maybe something. they were. Maybe, maybe there was still a negotiation. So we don't we don't really know the backstory, but. Berkey, what, well, also, they were getting a lot of positive publicity for announcing mm. his departure on National Women's Day. They sharp. Sharp. Right. Is it, though? Because so, like, yeah, I mean, sort of blew all that away. Yeah, but I mean, like, you know, this is all a, a marketing ploy, right? At the end of the day, we can recognize that Dan Blazarian's value is as a, a, a marketable, call it, platform. I don't know what else to refer to. I would be that. interested to see, has, like, the numbers like how actually profitable is he as a rep like because he has to be expensive right like that's a that has to be by far the most expensive contract they have is he really helping the market enough to i mean i guess he must be it's probably close to daniel's contract i would say probably yeah. daniel's think? contract has to be large yeah um so yeah, daniel has to be somewhere. eating more he's just more active yeah yeah but bill zarian is like a spoiled boy like do, <laughs> don't you think he would you know cost a lot He's definitely not I cheap. I think he's. Yeah, I definitely think he costs more than. Or is he's he bankrupt? Worth, I don't know. <laughs> you heard it here first. Poodog <laughs> Melissa claims. I don't know. Is he? I, I heard he was renting his house. <laughs> I mean, I heard that too, but. Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> yeah, I heard Pretty he beats big. old uh, women too, and I heard he hates puppies. Did <laughs> I see that. <laughs> I'm just, trying to keep here first. My, I'm just trying to keep my private game seats. <laughs> <right here. laughs> 
I don't get it. I don't have well, then, any seats, so I'll go. I'll be the one that says it. God damn. This, <laughs> this, this signing does bring up the question of, uh, you know, basically, how do we how do we view these companies when it comes to, uh, let's call it a divisive figure in Blazarian? Do we think that they have any level of, um, I guess, responsibility to the community? You know, the, the, this just basically. It, it reemerges all of the complaints that Vanessa had uh, a year, a year and a half ago, whatever, whenever they initially signed him. Like, what do we think of that commentary? And then I guess the the more relevant question to answer now is, is he worth it? Like, does he actually bring in uh, a community of players that doesn't already exist or give a shit about poker? Okay. So first off, GG turning off their comments is... Not brave. Total puss move. Like, yeah, no it's offense, not brave. Gigi. I don't have anything against Gigi, but a puss move. <laughs> Objectively. Puss boy move. Puss boy move. Come on. Oh, man. He can't possibly be doing that much marketing for... I mean, I would much rather, like, if I were a company, have someone like Adam22 or someone who does, like, actual... Oh, that's a good person. You know, actual, sure. like, content and make yeah. stuff regularly than someone like Bilzerian, who's a spoiled literally, brat like, and are, doesn't want to do any work to market... Makes, there's literally podcasts literally content. That, There's literally podcasts that run Monday through Friday every single day. He doesn't do anything. At 1 p.m. What does he do? <laughs> Sit there, pick his ass, and hire hoes to sit, stand around him and take photos? Like, what does he do? I mean, I'm going to put the mic down and let you. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't understand how he, he has to be the most, one of the most expensive hires. And he was what he ran a free roll. Yeah, he ran what the free else roll. did he do for them? I mean, I have to assume well, GG has some sort of right. analytics behind this, right? Like, they, yeah. So they have to just say, this is. This is a net profit for us. Yeah, it must be. It has to be. It, or else, why would they, right. why would they do it? They have a year's worth of data at this point. So Yeah, they, I mean, he does have an audience, right? So, like, imagine right. this instead were Kim Kardashian. What would we expect out of her in order for this to be a, a big move for Gigi for them to capitalize on her audience? I would assume it would just be, like, a lot of social posting. Mm -hmm. But to yeah. my knowledge, we haven't seen those campaigns out of Blazarian. So the only thing I could guess is that they have something in the works where he's going to be more actively advertising for them in order to make whatever it is that they're spending on him worth some sort of uh, bigger picture. Right. But also, There's... like, he really taps into an American market, which they're not in yet. That's and true. I think maybe the initial signing was based off the fact that they planned on making strong moves to get into America by now, which I think has been halted. This is the thing. You know when you get into an Uber and they're like, oh, what do you do for work? And they tell them, I play poker. The, f the next, no. the next, no, no. Because sometimes I tell them I play poker. And then the next thing they say <laughs> is, have you played with Dan Bilzerian? Literally, I've gotten this many times. It's, and it, they associate Dan Bilzerian as the biggest poker player in the world. And to us, it sounds ridiculous because we're like, wait, Dan Bilzerian doesn't even play like that. But the outside world still thinks he made all his money from poker. He's the most successful poker player of all time. And he has all these women from poker. That is the average consumer yeah, fair. that views poker that way. So it's like, to us, it's like, well, what does he do? But to the outside average audience, like casual fan, right? he is poker. Actually, I've had friends ask 
did Bilzerian actually make his money from poker? And I'm like, you know, this is like a meme in the poker community. Right. <laughs> like, no. Right, but, but maybe, I, but no. Yeah. But <laughs> GG must find value in this. They're, like, he is... Yeah. He's regarded from the casual fan, which is, I assume, their target, audi their target audience with these pros yeah. that they sign. Okay, so... As someone that has made all their money from poker. Consider this. A lot of the poker industry doesn't think that you're a poker, like a, a huge poker star, but you're only trying to reach out to the mainstream audience. Right. You know that you're not going to really be a poker ambassador any, anywhere if, unless you're, um, your deal is good. So it's almost like, you know, we have an assumption that he's really expensive. Maybe he's not. Maybe it's almost like he's buying this sponsorship. <clears throat> uh, this is complete conjecture, of course. But like, it could be a really small deal in exchange for looking like he is a professional. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's part of like the value exchange. Maybe. Yeah, I guess we are assuming that his contract's really big. We don't know. It just yeah. sort of defines like based off the numbers, right? Like just from like a logistical standpoint, if th they're making money because of it, continue it. If they're not. Is I it worth it? Like well, I think what Berkey was asking also was, do does like does GG have responsibility or or whatever? Is that what you were saying, Berkey? Something along the lines of how much responsibility yeah, well, does he do they have? So, so there's a couple things. Number one, like, do they have some responsibility as an operator in this community to portray the game in a marketable way, bigger picture, rather than uh, leaning into the Playboy lifestyle and the seediness and, and all that other stuff. And then secondarily, uh, and I think that this is probably the bigger question to answer that's relevant now is, do we even give a shit? Like, does anyone in this community give one shit if Dan Blazarian is the poster boy of poker, if we assume some level of growth to come from it? I think, I think there are women that do for sure. Um, I mean, I can't speak for them, but a lot of them have been vocal about it. So I, I guess that's a Melissa take. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not expecting um, any sort of, I mean, he's just always been that way, you know? So it's kind of like, I guess I'm a little bit conflicted on it, but I think I'd be more upset if it was like, they hired like, who's a good example? I don't know. I think it'd be, I'd be more, I'd be more upset if it were like they hired a, a bad uh, female representative than, than expecting some, like everybody knows he's a trust fund tool. Like no one expects him to be like. Uh, You're holding that, punches today. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. I just think he's cringe. Like he's like old now. Like it's kind of like, dude, like, You've been doing this for a long time. Like it's kind of, kind of weird. I mean, I get it. Like you're to like appeal to this like twenty something like Playboy lifestyle, and that was like cool when you were younger. But now it's sort of sad. I'll say this though. <laughs> let, let me let me kind of let me take the other side just for to play devil's advocate. These formulas, they definitely work. Like when we look at Instagram, these. Playboy lifestyles, they work. Like these, these are huge yeah. followings of yeah. like men with like all these women and yachts playing Look poker, gambling, like, like, exactly like, like having like million dollars in the suitcase. Like 
they work like yeah. they, they garner an audience they have they have uh, a funnel that they have to to sell you stuff and it works yeah it so represents like, a fantasy lifestyle that yeah. can't be fascinating but, right? but that's what instagram is yeah so it works and gg's seeing this and they're like well we got the top the top dog in our in our corner let's 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 make money together yeah and what do we do as like gg's like well we're making money and i'm like well all right yeah it seems to be pretty beneficial on their part because they would have just canceled otherwise it's kind of like my logical standpoint on it just from sheer numbers it's like this is plus numbers okay let's continue it all right Let's see what happens next year. Right? I also think that cancel, like, when, like regards to cancel culture, like, I don't know if cancel culture really exists in poker. It, it, no. You just do something. Well, the eventually decides, people just right? like, okay, sure. And then move on. Like, it's also just like not a figure that's ever really been taken like super seriously beyond like what he is, which is just uh, like <laughs> the guy that does like stuff with hoes. Right? Well, is that his is, thing? I don't know. Is he a reality TV character? Here we go. Always. Here we go. Because maybe same idea. If you just take him as a reality TV character, do you forgive him a little bit, Melissa? Just like Bunny. Well, I do. I do see him in that lens. I think I never viewed him as a professional poker player. I never viewed him as a t- person of talent. I mean, he's just sort of like a marketing. Like he's, uh, he's, he's, he's good at marketing himself. Maybe. I don't know. He probably has a team that helps him and he has the, he already had the funds to start that up. I mean, anyone could hire a publicity agent that's good enough and pump themselves up to look like something they're not. But like, um, I don't know. Yeah. I think he's whatever. Like, I don't think he's someone who tries to be very much, maybe he does try to be respected, but I don't (laughs) Maybe I think it only works to people who who don't have like a lot of brain cells, so it doesn't really matter. I I would like to take the stance Bang. that, or Bang. at least maybe double down, uh, sorry, that Dan. we'd shush. Wait, what? <laughs> Just said sorry, Dan. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I I'd like to take the stance that we just shouldn't give a shit at all. Um, I think uh, the vast majority of industries that are growing are largely uh popularized by somebody who isn't overly respected in that particular field uh with sports being maybe the exemption um talent just reigns supreme there and it just has to pass the eye test right like it's impossible to be lebron and not be talented but in most other subjective arenas be it music or movies or um mind games whatever the case may be it's very easy to just find an influencer to be the face of that right like i don't even know what industry kim kardashian's in but she's certainly the fucking face of it and we just reality tv industry yeah yeah like whatever but uh at the end of the day whether we're talking about uh blazarian or at a lower level like poker bunny these divisive characters are are known and and uh, maybe the most divisive of them all is Helmuth. And he's probably the most recognized poker player worldwide, if not slightly behind Daniel. Um, but even Daniel's brand is a little bit on the divisive side of things. Like he really does like to start the pot. And when he is socially active and 
uh, things of that nature. Like, he, he's not holding any punches. So I just think, like, we just shouldn't give a shit. I think that we come from this vantage point where we want to be respected for what it is that we choose to do. And there's parts of us that uh, see ourselves in the reflection of the face of the community, right? So we'd much rather have poker being popularized by Jason Kuhn or an Eric Seidel or, um, you know, some very talented, sharp individual who's intelligent and respectful and, uh, you know, kind of leads with value and things of that nature. But those guys aren't going to move the needle when it comes to drawing in the casual fan who basically only knows the rules and is playing like $5 sit and goes at the kitchen table. Let it's going to be the person. Good. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. I don't want to go next. Oh, it, it's, it's just going to be the person who is like more of the rock star brand, right? Like if we look at how music was packaged in the eighties and nineties, it was these guys like Tommy Lee from, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. I don't even remember the band he was in, but whatever. Like he was the drummer. He wasn't even the lead. Motley Crue. Like, yeah. Motley Crue. Uh, I couldn't even tell you who the, the lead singer was, which is insane. Like a drummer is never that much more popular, but he was the party boy, right? He lived this outlandish lifestyle where he's, you know, banging supermodels and then eventually landing himself with Pamela Lee Anderson. And uh, it just becomes a, a story to follow. And uh, effectively, it does become a reality star. That's what's promotable, uh, as fortunate or unfortunate as it may be. Like, that's what's going to get the clicks. Well, I also think if we're, because we did poll, like, who's better, Bill Zarian or Poker Bunny? I think the diff, there's also huge, obviously, there's a huge difference because Bill Zarian already had built. Uh, an entire following and brand of millions of people. So he clearly brings in his own value aside from poker and has a reach outside of poker. And also, there's so many male ambassadors to choose from. Like, it's not like he's the only one. Like, Gigi has a has Kuhn and they have Negranu. Like, they have a bunch of other mm. people who are more respected in the industry, way more than Bilzerian. So it's not like he's, like... The face, you know, he's just a face that appeals to a certain market that would be nice to have at your table. Yeah, my, I think my standpoint is kind of just like, what is the relevance of we as an industry caring about who represents when it comes to trying to gain mass appeal from an outside perspective? What does it matter, right? Well, like while I, we I as a community matters. don't necessarily respect or call it whatever word you will if it does generate an outside market or more influx of people into poker does it matter let me say this because this argument isn't necessarily new uh when we remember if we scale back to the red pro days of full tilt and the sponsorships of back then a lot of the people our age uh, within like you know the, that twenty to thirty ish era age, we're saying the same thing about the old guard, saying like, well, they're not <laughs> relevant anymore, they suck, and like we're the new people. And I remember Galfon being like pretty hurt that he was not like getting sponsored before like all these other people that he was like wiping the floor with. But the companies were like, well, these people are just more marketable than you, and I think. If we now look at this era, 
this is like the content creator influencer era where they're just more valuable than the poker players, right? Yeah. Like what's more valuable is the people that create content, the people that are influencers in the industry rather than like the professional poker player of back then. So people like Dan Bilzerian, people that are just influencers with large audience that can like put out a wider net than just like a Steven Chidwick who's just extremely good at poker and staring people down. Yeah, and the creator economy is growing at a way faster mm -hmm. rate than the poker industry. Right, so I think that's what we're seeing now where it's just like, maybe we're just seeing a shift where in a few years, we're just gonna have creators and influencers being the, pro, the, the sponsored pros rather than the Jason Coons of the world and, and things like that. Well, I think we already saw that uh, begin to happen with poker stars when they basically cut their entire roster and started signing uh, a bunch of athletes and influencers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that it can be somewhat effective, but I also think that you're not fooling anybody. Um, so it's really just a matter of how much can you leverage their platforms and their audiences? Like what is the Venn diagram overlap between this influencer and interest in poker kind of thing? Right, but you can do uh, both. That said, that's, that's the thing, right, Berkey? You yeah, can do both. Yeah, yeah. You can sign Jason yeah. Kuhn and Dan Bilzerian. And, and that's, that's a happy medium. Correct. Yeah. And that, that fulfills uh, the, the professional's uh, yeah. outlook on this. Like, I can see myself in a, in a Jason Kuhn, right? So I, as a professional, I could say, like, that's who I want to strive to be like. And that's great. The problem oh. is, is that those that are disenfranchised in this market uh, have minimal to no representation that they can kind of look up to. So specifically like women and minorities, we don't really see anybody at that highest level that represents them. And what they get left with is kind of a spit in the face because it's now the antithesis of what they're hoping for in a Dan Blazarian. But even with all of that said, I think I kind of stand behind the idea of leaning into the the divisive character that moves the needle like at the end of the day we are kind of just watching a reality tv show play out uh at least at the at the lowest level right at the acquisition level when you're trying to bring people into small stakes when you're trying to get people through the door to play events uh and, and things of that nature like it's just gonna work to get a kim k to get a dan Bilzerian, i to would get love a kim somebody k. who has what the heck? You want to be the Kim Kardashian of poker? No, I would right love her to be. Listen, I, she had an Instagram story where she was playing with Bitcoin plaques. They were playing some charity yep. poker tournament. Isn't there like a meme of also, her where she's playing with, um, yeah, with, with, the, with the mirrored, mirrored sunglasses? <laughs> and you're like, maybe you shouldn't be playing with reflective sunglasses. Yeah. Looks cool. Reflection of their cards. Are <laughs> let's, let's talk about the chat. Like the chat's saying Mr. Beast. Like, what do we think about that? He was, he well, he was playing, he was playing poker, but like, yeah. if Mr. Beast starts playing poker on his YouTube, that's amazing. That's huge. Like, imagine yeah. he was streaming like a poker tournament. Listen, how much can Sulfur Y pay Mr. Beast for not, like, listen, just enough, play right? poker? Berkey. Not enough. He already has. Let's take, out, let's take out a loan. No, no, he already has. No, there's, I know he asked, but did he ask with paper though? Like straight money, straight cash? <laughs> yeah. There's no amount of, listen, I don't think you know him very well. Like if you listen to his story on Rogan, he's, he's no, why not. Why do you take shots at me like you don't know him? <laughs> How do you know Adam Oh, Because you're, you're, you know? you're, because you're saying. We're going out to dinner later. Are you coming? <laughs> you're not. And you're just saying things that like are fundamentally untrue of his character. He's not, he's not motivated by money. He's 
basically reinvesting every penny into philanthropy and back into his channel. Um, and I think for pause. those reasons, uh, I think for those reasons, he's going to be very unwilling to promote poker in the public eye. Uh, because you're right, he does have a big interest in it. He plays all the time. Uh, he streams on Twitch. Was it Twitch, Landon, where he was doing those sit and goes? Uh, I think he had some YouTube stuff. Uh, he was playing on YouTube where I don't know if he was streaming himself, but other people were streaming on Twitch or YouTube, like okay. playing poker, uh, like eight, right. eight max, nine max. And they were just uh, playing like a home game, like one, two, but he was just like open jamming every hand every every so often or kind of Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That. So basically he's using his platform to help yeah. those who are uh like smaller than him but more interested in poker than he is to kind of grow and that's great maybe we'll see some indirect uh growth like that like i've been trying so hard to play with him and just like show him poker out loud i i, I mean if he would ever consider coming on awesome like if he would even just like want to retweet it great but yeah, we're the whole a point is, is that I... channel can he help Wait, us what? We're smaller YouTubers. Can he help a smaller YouTuber? <laughs> well, I guess I guess what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, he takes a lot of pride in what he's created in YouTube, and it seems very clear that he has it figured out. So I think he does have a lot of respect for creators who are doing unique things, and for that reason, he might take an interest in Poker Out Loud. But um, I don't think that, uh, and and I hope I'm wrong because I think he's the perfect ambassador for this game. Right, like he doesn't even need to be good, but he just has the giga audience. And the sick thing is, is that like, not only does he have like one of the biggest audiences ever, uh, and certainly the biggest on YouTube, but the overlap of the type of person that gravitates toward poker and his audience is second to none. Mm -hmm. Right, like we're like train wreck. Like he does the slot streams. Yeah. Like yeah. Pretty gambly audience. I think they probably have overlap too. Yeah, but you know, it's gonna take a big, uh, it's gonna take a big brand to go out and get these guys. Like, sure, if GG had the option to sign Mr. Beast or, or Blazarian, they would be insane to choose Blazarian over Mr. Beast. But I don't know that they necessarily had that choice. I think everyone should just like tag Mr. Beast with this little clip. Yeah. We put out a clip, and then everyone tag Mr. Beast. Like, hey, yeah. this is Poker Out Loud. We might find this interesting. We want Mr. Go. Beast. I like where your head's at. Yeah, you see. Oh, right. So, yeah. yeah, now you like where my head's people. at. Now. No. <laughs> you have good ideas sometimes. You don't know him? Uh, <laughs> now he's going to make it his crusade to get yep. to know Mr. Beast. Mm -hmm. So he can I'm gonna, rub I'm, it in I'm your best face. Friends with him I'm like going to take a, a selfie with Mr. Beast and <laughs> just tag Berkey. You where don't you know at? him. <laughs> Spite is a very powerful motivator. Uh, damn that's fine by didn't, me. god damn um <laughs> speaking of poker out loud and poker strategy as a whole uh the topic that i kind of want to wrap on today is just the evolution of strategy as we know it from the beginning of the boom until modern day uh and this kind of popped into my head today off of a, a tweet that Melissa put out. I, I don't want to go to it yet because uh, I think it's a little bit premature, but uh, it was basically Negranu back in the day kind of walking through a hand history. And man, I just had such nostalgia for the days where you just put a man on a hand and you talk it out of him and you look him in the face and say, like, look, bud, I don't think you got it. And like, that's what Negranu was like really known for. Um, 
and if you look at that like subsection of of like 2003 to Black Friday ish, uh, maybe that's a little bit too far along. Maybe it was more like 2003 to 2008. Strategy was just really what you could logic out in real time. Uh, and I know that I'm probably speaking a foreign language to Melissa and Landon here, and I, I'd be happy to get their thoughts uh, once we kind of like flesh out this this section. But for guys like myself and Brian, probably uh, even to some degree, Conrad and uh, Christian, when we were learning this game, it was very kinesthetic, right? Uh, so we were just sitting down, playing, observing, and working through all of the potential options that we had available to us in, in that moment. We were working through the patterns that we, we recognized uh, throughout all of our tens of hundreds of hours of play. Uh, I can remember talking line work with Brian like in the early to mid 2000s where it's like, yeah, so like on these textures where there's no draw available and I flop a set, uh, what I do is I take a check race check line because they see it as weakness and it induces that second bet, uh, allowing them to like put in more money with a hand that's drawing dead type of stuff. And like this was the way that we formulated strategy, you know, it was it was never a matter of balancing, like, what would I do with value? What would I do with a bluff? It was never even really a matter of um, figuring out what your opponent had unless you were weak. That was the only time you really cared about your opponent's range were the times that you were weak because it was like, well, if I'm weak, is he weak? If I'm weak, is he strong? And then you would just arrive at, like, calling and folding decisions based off of that. It was so prehistoric right and i can't even imagine what it was like pre-online like in doyle's day uh i mean i guess we get a glimpse of it right reading super system that that's at least for us that was the first strategy based literature that was uh pushed across our desk right and i mean for me it was just like mind-blowing having read that like i just remember uh, after getting through it, like hopping on party poker and just blasting off every time I flopped top pair <laughs> and just blasting off every time I flopped a flush draw and basically like trying to put people to a test. And I can remember the overfolds that occurred. Like people were just so risk intolerant that like top pair would just like start hitting the muck. And, you know, you just got away with murder back in the early days. Uh, but really we were all just, feeling our way through the dark. Nobody had any idea what was going on. And I think a good example of this uh, and a funny example of this is the first clip that I want to show. This is my man, Tough Fish, out there in the party poker streets, <laughs> just trying to play his damn hand and make some bottom line, you know? All right, now we got a damned hand. Jesus Christ. Let's see if we can do something with it. It's unfortunate this jackass is not in it. Okay. One... 95. I'm raising it up. Alright, come on. Somebody push or raise this thing. Come on, Curly. Push it. Well, I guess... What the hell did he just do? Mm. Okay, well... The non-all-in four bet. I asked him to push. So be it. I asked him to push, and he accommodated me, or as a near push, he doesn't really have anything left. So, boy, what does the flop come? God <laughs> almighty! 
Okay, well, I... Fuck me to goddamn tears. <laughs> Fuck me to tears. Okay, it's, uh, you know, we're all done. Fold. Deal me out. Okay, we're done for the day. I mean, you know, I, there's a limit to how much of that crap can go on. <coughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah, I was beat, but Christ Almighty, come on. Do I have to be beat by every goddamn hand I get in? All right, ran off. I'm out of here. I mean, criminy. Just talk about foul luck. I, I see no I difference. Fuck me to tears. See no difference. Fuck me to tears. <laughs> that's how that's how I am when I play today. So I don't know. <laughs> You're like, wait, there is no evolution. Yeah, what's that's, the difference? <laughs> I mean, I promise you that we all have a tough fish d deep down inside. And for a lot of us, it's a lot closer to the surface. But I don't think that's true uh, necessarily of like modern poker strategy. I think that when you are so mathematically inclined and you kind of have a rough answer for most spots, the emotions don't really creep in. You lose a little bit of the entitlement because you just recognize the long run of it all. And I know that uh, Fedor put a tweet out today um, promoting uh, Mateus, I believe, uh, or uh, one, of, one of the other Poker Code coaches. I, I could be wrong on which one it was. But he basically just like put a tweet out that said, uh, he's a robot or he's a machine. And uh, it's kind of just like highlighting like how good his decision making is. And it, it breaks my heart to see those two ends of the spectrum. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, poker is still amazing. And it's only evolving day in and day out as a strategy game. Uh, and it really is much more of a mind sport now than it was back in the old days. But it also is like, it, you know, I have so much nostalgia for the days where it was just wits and wagers and your sole purpose was to just outsmart your opposition. That's not really the case anymore, right? Like now our sole purpose is to follow the the beat of the underlying math and to adhere to modern game theory strategies that allow us mm. to make good coherent rational decisions based on kind of like the aggregate of all the possible decisions that we could adhere to uh i don't know what is to come in the next iteration but i do know that like it's kind of scary right i, I feel like we're not all that far off from from ai and that's that's a really far cry uh just tying all this back now to Toughfish, when you guys were first learning, Landon and Melissa, uh, how much of, I guess, your learning process was going through these emotionally reactive moments and then trying to figure out like what went wrong, what you can do better, how you can start to win more at this game um, through a lens that is kind of emotionally clouded? I think mine was probably way more... Um like that than Landon's was like I was not like <laughs> I was very like trial and error like I started off just like limping whatever I like felt like was gonna hit the flop and then like <laughs> I think you know I would just float with like I had one hand that I posted on Twitter that I found from like one of the first online tournaments I played and I just like am limping and like floating with king high and then just like losing to like pair and just I I was very 
I wanted to figure it out on my own and like figure out my own way to play. And then I realized like, oh, the time for that is way over. Like they already went through that. And now it's like it's very much more towards the solved version of the game. Like if you want to win. So I yeah. I think I would have done great back then <laughs> with, with my <laughs> emotional feel game, but <laughs> I, I had to give that up. So. What about you, Landon? Did you go through any, like, uh, I guess, like, any process of having to figure it out through trial and error and, like, really quell your emotions? Or, like, have you just always been a goddamn robot? Um, when I first started, probably for the first year and a half, two years, uh, never really used Pyro that much. Like, just never used uh, solvers or knew that solvers existed or thought they were kind of irrelevant when it comes to playing a game against people. But then when I started understanding the baselines of what you can and can't get away with when it comes to a theoretical sense and then kind of seeing where those guidelines are and then understanding how to appropriately exploit was when I started winning more and having better results. So I, I started from a standpoint of like having pretty well constructed debat, like debat and preflop ranges, all things considered when it comes to I never really open limped very much. Those just kind of never in my overall like original strategy of poker to begin with. But it definitely became more emotionally aggressive when it comes to playing post-flop and seeing things that you can do when it comes to check raising versus check calling and less trapping, so to speak, when it comes to like playing more checks with hands that are good because you want to have the other person make a mistake, so to speak. So my, my game definitely yeah. became a lot more aggressive when it came to putting in bets and raises. Once I realized that putting in more bets and raises is kind of what's incentivized in poker by itself. So that's kind of how... Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think largely speaking, uh, and I'm talking for the collective here, but like for sure myself and I'm sure Christian and, and Brian can adhere to this, like we figured that out too. Like the laggy, the quote unquote lag style yeah. was what won for a decade, right? So it, it wasn't really a matter of that. The problem was... Figuring out lag on your own without the aid of software comes with a lot of emotional pitfalls. Right. Like it's just a lot of these tough fish moments where I, I mean, I still say this now, <laughs> where it's just like if they didn't deal me a good hand, I'd be fine because I'm redlining games to death. But the second that I get something near top of range, like they have it. And that's kind of the way that poker has always been played by the unstudied is to be patient, to wait, to take a Helmuthian approach where it's like you try to just jab and bob and weave and win as much as you can at showdown with your marginal hands. But right. like ultimately you're willing to sacrifice all of that for the times where you get Kings versus Queens. And it's hard from my perspective because it's like, I know what wins. I know what, what allows me to overly redline. But I also don't know how to get away from top of range if, you know, the, the, the case is that my opponents are literally just trying to wait me out. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess to that point, uh, I'm going to ask, Lem uh, no, let me ask Christian next. You kind of came up right in that mid-hybrid, right? So, like, you first mm -hmm. started right around Black Friday, maybe slightly before, slightly after. How much of your game was kind of influenced by this old school mentality of just feeling it out in the moment. So I want to address something 
that I think is probably the underlying current uh, is do we still believe there's secrets in the game? Because back then, that was like what made the pros, right? Like they knew secrets that the other people didn't know. And then when Doyle came up with the book, he felt like he gave away secrets. So the question today, I think, is do we still believe there are secrets? Or, the, or do we just follow the machine and that uncovered everything? I think... Hang on to that thought for a second. Uh, I'll, let you, I'll let you answer that in a second because I think that's a great segue into the next clip that we're going to play. So talking about a little bit of the, the special skill set that live players had back in the day and the, the quote-unquote secret sauce, Daniel Negreanu was a master of this. And I want to play this hand history because there's a lot here outside of him just uh, you know, getting into a, uh, a verbal sparring match with his opponent. There's also the aspect of like how he chooses to play the hand. And you'll hear him like give this rhetoric of like, yeah, I want to play small ball. And like he was the first one to kind of implement that uh, and develop a strategy around it. So let's go ahead and roll the clip. And then Christian, you can kind of give your thoughts on what it meant to be uh, elite back then. You and it helped me because I want to tell you about this funky hand I just played. Tell, tell me about it's a good one. It. Tell me, about me and Jamie go over. Okay. Steve Bilorakis. You can make that smoky one online. He limped for 300. I limp in the button with Jack 10 off suit. Jamie go in the big line. Looked like he wanted to get frisky. He made it 1500 more. Steve folds and I felt the move. I felt weakness. I felt like he had absolute air. Okay. So I called it. Okay. With garbage, Jack 10. The flop is Jack 4 4. He bets a thousand, which is kind of strange, right? So I call. The turn is an eight. He checks and I check because I'm not looking to go crazy. The river's a deuce and he goes all in now for why 10,000. Did you, why didn't you bet at that point? Because I didn't want him to check raise me if he okay, had a bigger pair. Okay, okay. So I'm going to play a smaller pot. So now he goes all in on the river, right? And now we, we basically spend about seven minutes talking to each other. Because, you know, Jamie Gold, he's all into the talking and stuff. And no one called time? Or... No, because they're all like, they're enjoying it, I think. Of course. So he's, the first thing he says is he says, as well, looks like you got me. You read me so well. You probably know what I have. He starts putting his jacket on. He's, he pays the massage girl for his tip. And then, but then he's watching the football game and he looks really relaxed. He's doing a good job acting. I'm thinking, like, so I'm really confused. Today. Then he said, uh, he said a few things. Then he finally said, if you don't call, I won't show. And I went, really? So now he is that trying to pretend that he really wants me to call, but he doesn't? And uh, we went back and forth for like five, six minutes until finally I put two and two together. I, I was, still wasn't sure because usually I got a good read on him. But yeah. this time he was like, Oscar. I said, buddy, you, know, you got me here. This is amazing. But I finally called him and he just, you know, says, you got it. And now I'm back up to 40,000. I'll come out. But it was really wow. like, I was very impressed with his acting abilities because everyone at the table is like, Daniel Pauls, he's definitely dead here. But Interesting. I'm a calling station. So go ahead, Chin. Tell, tell me a little bit about, like, because uh, to me, that hand history reveals a lot of what you're talking about, right? This idea that guys like Negreanu, who were at the highest level, had this secret ability to not only curate a strategy overall, but also to uh, engage in psychological warfare that allowed their opponents to reveal their hand to them. Yeah, I, I, think, I think Daniel was the best at that, right? Like, his entire career was a lot of like psychological warfare and keeping things somewhat small until he could kind of put you on a hand and things like that. And yeah, I did grow up in this like kind of middle era where it was like the transition. Like I came in with the Daniel Negranos and Durr and Ivy. And then I saw the Phil Goff on blue fire videos. And then I saw Phil Goff on run at once videos. And then, and it just like, I kind of saw it all right. For, I didn't, I didn't get to see Doyle stuff, but like, 
I saw that middle transition. I think that it's just like technology. It's similar to just he was solving a problem back then and then he solved it. And then people started to mimic him uh, and, and try to replicate all the things he did. And then people were better at concealing their secrets to Daniel Negreanu and, and people of that era. Then the machine came out and people started mimicking the machine. But the question now is, are there still secrets to be had even though the machine exists? And I think the answer to that is like, absolutely yes. It's just yep. a matter of trying to find them and making it a thing to find them. Um, if you believe that the game is completely like these machines, like Fedor was saying or whatever, like are, are a thing, then you're kind of just drawing dead because the secrets do exist. You just have to be very diligent in finding them. And I think that applies to like pretty much anything in, in, in life. It, it's, it's like, if you think that like, you know, fuck it, transportation is solved. Like then Uber would never have existed. If you think that like hotels did the whole job, Airbnb never existed. So it's just like, sometimes the secrets are right under your nose. You just really have to find them. And then I think that's our job as pros is like, making sure we're finding the secrets and not and being somewhat open-minded of the relationship between the machine and the exploits and leaning towards the exploits if we're confident enough in that. Yeah, like I can at least say from my perspective and things I've seen and the way that my game has changed over the past couple months, if not year, years, is that especially when it comes to the machine, so to speak, uh, parameters are kind of everything. Like mm -hmm. when you start giving the machine more options, some things that were sort of considered as terrible in the past are actually great from yeah. an EV gaining standpoint. And not only is it backed by a theoretical perspective, but also now you force your opponent to play in a line that they might not ex know exists. Like when it comes to having smaller bets in some spots or mm -hmm. having donk leads for bigger sizes in some spots or sometimes like having donk jams. And I get surprised every day by looking at a hand that I've played or a friend of mine has played and be like, oh, wow, like you actually do get to do like a 3x pot jam or you do get to bet 10% here or you do get to do some things that would conventionally be looked at as bad because it's yeah. not the standard approach of C betting 33% every time or only having a biggest bet size of pot. Right. And then finding those things and being able to work those into your game in a way that makes sense to you and especially is easy to implement is what makes a lot of the win rate, especially when it comes to playing in spots where you're playing for less EV to be scooped up. And then in other games, like well, finding the exploits of how to win the most versus not winning the, not losing the least is also really important. Right, if you look at the entire line. like uh, mass data analysis community, like this is their entire job, like attempting yeah. to find the secrets of like, how does the pool play um, and then leaning into that. So I think there is definitely a marriage between the machine and the humans uh, that we have to try to find. Right. And, and I think that's well, just think the evolution you, where we're at. I think you two are talking about two different things, uh, however, and I, I also think that there's another layer added to that that's problematic. Uh, so first, I think like, Landon's talking about discovery through through sims and that's not really that's not really uh finding secrets so to speak right that's just opening up more paths in the game tree that otherwise weren't necessarily there so all that's happening is you are gaining information that maybe the pool itself doesn't have yet but will eventually because that's just the way that's the nature of strategy right it's going to continually unfold 
until uh, we get more and more vision over the game tree. What Christian's talking about with mass data analysis is actually uh, unfurling the the exploits that are available, right? It's recognize it's it's using data to pull patterns that or to confirm patterns that we know exist that leave people exploitable. And now we're building strategies around those exploits. To me, however, the reason why that's problematic is because it's all dependent upon uh, nothing, like, the, like there's no human talent involved in any of that, right? It's either you're able to acquire the data and then uh, decipher what it means and apply it to your own strategy construction, or for like what Landon's talking about, you're just diligently putting in work trying to test and hypothesize uh, more and more depth in the game tree. Um, when we're talking about secrets, though, I think that we're largely talking about developing strategies in the undiscovered portions of, of the game um, or in arenas where the data doesn't exist, such as live. And that's where I don't think a whole lot has changed, right? We're talking about now... Uh, what the mass data community is doing is pulling patterns out of uh, actual data, right? But what humans are doing in the live realm is they're extrapolating the exploits based off of their observation. And to me, this is still a very uh, unique skill that is probably just ingrained in certain people that are stronger at, uh, let's call it, the interpersonal dimensions of of no limit hold'em right the the human interaction the 1v1 element where they're able to get into the mind of their opposition and that reveals everything uh the idea that live poker is played with some level of clairvoyance where the better player just has more vision over what the weaker player is holding at any given moment because they don't understand how to protect their range based off of sizing sequence or based off of uh, frequency-based plays, right? They're just doing everything too pure for too simple of sizings. Uh, so to me, like, that's where the quote-unquote secret sauce comes from or the, the, um, the talent or the edge that is derived in a non-manufactured um, way, let's call it. Uh, and I, I want to talk to Brian a little bit about this because I think that uh, he and I had always been on different planes whenever it came to this element of the game. When we were coming up, I was terrified to pursue poker in any sort of like professional way or any sort of meaningful way. And he was all in, like he was just so dedicated to the idea that you could do this as a living. Uh, and I remember one of the the moments that truly like flipped the script for me was we were playing in this $1, $2 underground game that we found on like pokerlistings.com or some some like homegames.com or something like that. It was in Pittsburgh. Uh, and we didn't know these people. It's crazy that like we did this. Uh, thankfully, it was for small enough stakes where like nothing bad could happen. But I played a hand uh, and I don't recall what it was, but I just remember like not having much. But the the particular opponent that we were up against was the host of the game and i just remember like being very 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 certain in a specific tell that i'd picked up on him whether it was betting pattern or like how he held himself on the river when he was bluffing whatever the case may be but i looked him up with like a really weak holding like an ace high or like a bottom pair type of thing or something like that and uh on the car ride back uh Lamette, i don't know if you remember this at all um but on the car ride back, i remember the session a little bit but go ahead 
Yeah, I was just going to say on the car ride back, like we were talking about the hand and I just remember you kind of saying to me, like, I knew you had a read on that guy. I was positive that like you were just going to break him in that game. And uh, that was like a, a moment where it was like reaffirming to me, okay, I do have a skill in this arena and it's not very easily defined and it's not really quantifiable, but it is this like unique ability to to like just see through the human weakness aspect. I mean, I have a lot to say if Brian doesn't have No, go ahead. Um, well, I want, I want, because he spoke to you, but I have a lot to say because it seems like you're struggling to find words, but go ahead. No, go, well, go what ahead. I was just going to say to Brian is that, uh, you know, this was, this is where he and I diverged. He never really put a lot of credence into that. He was just all about like playing tight, playing good hands mm -hmm. and making strong decisions whenever a lot of money went in. Yeah, it was like being, just being better than the people in the room. And it was like, at that time, it was so easy because everyone was just playing poker. They, they would just, they would go, they would sit down and play and they would play poker and then they would get up and do whatever else they did. They never thought about the game. And anybody who just thought about the game while they were not playing at the table was usually better. And that's all you had to do at the time to, to, to win right. the game. And so it was like, it was also easy to like not advance or not, or not try to find better ways to win because... You didn't have to do much to win. That makes sense. Right. And along those lines, that's, that's kind of like what led you out of the game, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, I never looked at a solver. Like the solver era is like, came about after I left the game and like, like now to, to get back into it now, it would be completely foreign to me. For sure. I think it just depends on how you define talent, right? Cause like there definitely is a talent in finding like ways when you know that people are like either folding range or calling range so you don't take mm -hmm. a certain line but then you can also argue that there's talent in putting in work through a mechanical essence of running scripts running sims looking at different spots coming up with new ideas that when it comes to sure people will find it at some point there is something to be said to having that knowledge and information two years or however long before the next person does at least when it comes to the difference between talent and like it's sort of like the difference between um, like intuitive ability and like book smart. Like some someone could study a lot and be very book smart, but maybe they don't have a natural like art to whatever they're doing. Yeah. I think there's a difference. I think I, I think that's the best way of describing it. I think that No Limit Hold'em uh, was in its early days much more of an art form and now it's much more of a science. So yeah. all these things that I'm quantifying as talent, very, very likely are exactly that like melissa said it's very intuitive to that person and they just have a naturally born skill set that few others possess whereas now it's a very scientific game so that talent isn't worth very much uh i think i mean you i know, disagree it's easy that. to take offense well okay it's worth less let's put it that way um i think these three I think things that, no look, hold on sorry i think these three things that yeah. we're talking about are still worth i don't know if which one's worth more and whatever like what you're talking about in terms of like putting people on hands and things like that this isn't this is what got us phil Hamuth. we could say what we want whatever but the man is still succeeding at what he does at a very high level like he's still making final tables whatever so he has he is the best at that talent right what landon is talking about in terms of like discovering new land and things like that that is also a trait that if you want to make it to the top level you're gonna need and in terms of like 
mass data analysis and, and finding nodes of the game tree where people are making errors, you're probably going to need that as well. So it's not as if any of these traits are more or less valuable than the other. If you want to make it to the top, you're probably going to have to be competent in all three of these traits at the, to make it to the top of the mountain at this point. Like, but all, all three of them aren't transferable. And that's kind of the point that I'm trying to make in separating talent from, from science. But what do you uh, think data is analysis? Well, here, the data here's kind of like what I would start with, and then you tell me if you think this is part of talent or this is part of hard work or uh, learning, right? Let's say you have a hand that you know, through a theoretical perspective, would mix between a call and a raise. Right. Yet you also are playing in a live environment where you know the person that you're playing against is too light. So instead of choosing an a mixed action, you take a pure action one way or the other. Is that talent or is that natural? Or is that hard work? I think it's both. That's hard work. Because the hard, no, I think it's both. Because the hard work is you knowing what the, what, the, what the actual mix is. And then the talent is you being good enough to recognize your, your opponent and yeah. deviating from X, from X uh, strategy. Right. So it's both. You have to have the hard work already. It, it's both. Sure. It can't okay. be one or the other. But Listen, 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 listen. Everybody's getting like very emotionally charged over these terms and they're very insignificant. Like when we're talking about the difference between talent and study, you shouldn't take more pride in the talent aspect because the studied individual is going to be the one who wins the most money in the long run. The talent aspect was necessary before strategy had evolved. And now that we've reached this evolution, even in the example that Landon offered, the person who just knows the mix will win a lot of money in that spot even if they don't shift into the exploit. Now, of course, the person who's aware of the exploit, because of some level of clairvoyance over their opposition, allows them to make more money, but we don't know the degree and accuracy with which, with which they're operating. So what I was trying to say before is that only one of those skills is non-transferable. That is the intuitive sense of what's going on at the table. That's unteachable. There's just no amount of, uh, of, of transferable knowledge that you can pass on to anybody else. But it matters the least because knowing the mass data exploit and knowing uh, what the actual game theory strategy is in a spot is worth way more win rate than just trying to navigate like Helmuth does in the exploitative realm based on observation. We're just too flawed as individuals. So I don't want to get too caught up in the emotion around being considered a naturally born talent versus a studied scientist right because the fact of the matter is though in in a human sense we may revere the former it's the latter that's making the most amount of money there are very few people at the top that aren't tens of thousands of hours into sim work yeah I, of course but i think that it's it, okay I mean, I disagree with like one being more valuable than the other, but I think that one is a prerequisite to the other. Okay, so. that, that in and of itself is what I think makes it more valuable, right? Like, if you only had the talent, you may not succeed. If you only had the data, you're certain to succeed. <laughs> so I guess that's what, in my mind, prioritizes one over the other. Yeah, I guess success is, is another, is another topic that we need to talk about, like... It's like, what are we, are we talking about the absolute top tier or are we talking about being like, you know, pretty, very, very good. You know, if you're talking about top tier, you're going to need, you're going to need 
like even when we had the the heads up challenge with Kevin Rabbit Kevin Rabbitshaw, like he said, like the top tier guys are exploiting. Like this isn't just like straight up like we just know theory. Like that's not how it works. Yeah, I, I guess you can talk about that. Land. I don't. I don't know. Um, well, I would just say that going along the lines of application when it comes to understanding things of that nature, applying is a talent. Like knowing mm -hmm. that a hand is supposed to jam for three X pot and then doing it are two different two things. Different things sure. And the talented guy might be able to do that more than the studied guy yeah. because the studied guy can make an, a claim saying, okay, I can only do it 20% of the time. I'm not, I'm going to mix for it. I didn't get it. I'm not going to do it where the talented guy sees a weakness of sorts and knows like, okay, what's the best option for me? Jam. And then they yeah. jam. And then right. they get And through. I think that's the part yeah. that Berkey's saying, like you can't transfer that. that is, just, I don't yeah. think it's, yeah, I don't think it's transferable either. I think that it's important when it comes to understanding what your ceiling is. Because someone with that talent of being able to understand what puts up, like what applies the most pressure and what gains the most results as fearful as they may be when it comes to like risking a tournament life or risking tens of thousands of dollars in a certain spot will naturally allow that to calibrate down versus someone that knows that you should but just can't do it because of the potential results mm -hmm. right sure. and that's sort of the difference when it comes to a studied approach versus like a naturally talented approach when it comes to being able to implement and being able to implement in my opinion is a talent yeah, i agree with that there's a lot of people that know what the machine says but there aren't a lot of full practitioners in that because yeah. there's you're waiting for better hands or a better spot so to speak Go ahead, Burke. Back to you. <laughs> Did you lose Burke? He gone? He's gone. <laughs> he, <ran. laughs> oh, no. he said I'm out. The he's actually suited yeah, man. He's, oh. <laughs> he's shrunk. He's gone. Burke, he's like, I can't Look at the little suited it. man. Yeah, I am the most talented. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, th I agree uh, with you. I think the most is that it, you, it is a blend of all. I mean, if you look at, like, let's say somebody is naturally smart there are so many me included in school like people who were naturally smart but didn't uh do any studying or work or anything like the person who is is maybe like not that naturally smart but studies a ton or whatever will get better grades than i would have but if someone has both yeah or if they have like both and then they're able to combine like everything that that's probably what makes the top because i don't think you can get that level yeah, i think we see a lot in, in, even in the business arena where it's just like the smartest people aren't the ceos of these companies right like it's more of the people that have a blend that they are very smart they also have like interaction ability with people they're able to sell they're able to right. communicate they're able to networking like network they do it all pattern i mean right. you, you can't replace like years and years of pattern recognition of seeing spots over and over and over again. And I said that about Doyle watching high stakes poker where I'm like, this man knows something we don't. He's over calling four bets and <laughs> flopping trips with a four and just leaving Garrett, the sun running man of the year, absolutely stunned because he's going, well, I got right, a four. I think, I think Garrett, and I'm think, like, you know what? Maybe he's like, he's just seen more live hands than anybody alive today. I think that's pretty fair. I think Garrett's probably. a great example. I, I mean, I don't know enough about Garrett, but I, I think many people would say that Garrett's probably not the most technically sound player of all time. Like he's not like running Sims all day, but like if you're sitting in a live cash game with him, he is a problem. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's, where does that come from? 
because like it, it comes from i think the ability to just do it all like the man yeah. just he knows enough of the technically sound things he's an expert at interpersonal like relationships yeah. and he's an, also an expert at just like max exploiting spots where he's just like oh he's weak bomb right like, mm -hmm. so he kind of does it all and it's that is something that's really hard to quantify because it is the result of many many years and many 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 hands of pattern recognition and that all of that i mean your intuition is just a bunch of data that's very quickly coming to your consciousness so yeah. their data they have co collected so much data of hands that is really really hard to quantify like are yeah. the brains working faster than a computer would at, at pulling that out so yeah then there definitely is an ego attached when it comes to the naturally talented versus the hardworking. And I can kind of attest when it comes to like, I guess, being relatively smart, getting good grades, but I didn't study. And I took, I kind of took pride in that in some ways. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, like I'm doing this well and I didn't even try. But at some point, especially when you try to get to the higher levels of things, when it comes to being elite, you have to put that aside and realize that's working hard and having that drive is important and putting in hours of study and also taking in like, okay, I'm smart and I can understand these things, but also at the same time, I can't just get to her. I can't get to where I want to on my own. Right. And right? I think we saw that with Garrett and we also saw that with Daniel, like Garrett had that meteoric rise on all these streams, but yeah. then we saw um, our Papazian come in. We saw Andy come in. We saw Dan, Dan Zach come in yep. and these kids were like, giving him a problem because they were just a lot more technically studied than him. Right. But then Garrett went through an era of like catching up. Yeah. He's like, okay, I'm going to put in this work too. But now he has this other layer underneath where he put this on top of it. And now it's like, okay, right. what are you going to do? Yeah. And we as humans are never going to be able to understand every spot with perfect clairvoyance and transparency. And especially when it comes to, other games, not even just cash, but also like MTTs, the so different stack depths with asymmetric stack depths of somebody having 30 bigs, big blinds has 15 and 25. And how does that change your strategy? And all this stuff kind of you have to create with the guidelines you already know, having the ability to kind of make your own assumptions and come to your own conclusions because we don't have the answers for every spot and we never will. So like there is a part that blends the hard work of knowing what it looks like at a normal standardized stack depth and then transferring that to an asymmetric stack depth and being able to yeah. intuit what the best option is. And it's the, not easy, but it becomes easier with hard work and studying and learning along those lines. Are you back? Bring this, to bring this full circle as far as like, suit. Uh, how, how this <laughs> transfers now into modern day strategy. I mean, like what Christian said about Garrett, uh, I think was like very relatable uh, for myself personally. In the live realm, everything moves so slowly. So, uh, and also the competition is relatively weak. So it's like, until you see an influx of four or five really strong studied players coming in, you just don't notice where you're weak. And for me personally, it's like, uh, I, I kind of like went through that phase in between like 2015 and 2016, when I was on a bit of a downswing and the games were getting a little bit tougher. Um, you know, we were seeing this influx of uh, guys from Macau coming in, who were playing like pretty wild and aggressive and were just learning the game. So it wasn't them that was making it tough, but it was the other pros that were getting access to this game that suddenly made it tough. You know, suddenly I'm playing a lot more with Rast. I'm playing a lot more with Jason Kuhn. I'm playing a lot more with uh, Durr and, and these other guys that are accustomed to playing big and are relatively studied. 
that forced a huge change. And as a byproduct of that, like Solve for Why was kind of born. It was uh, as much of a passion project of my own to catch up to modern game theory as it was uh, this idea that there was uh, a lack of live training available for those who were in the slower sphere, like myself, like you, Christian, um, and, you know, landed to some degree. And I think that, you know, when, when we juxtapose this against those first two clips that we played where you have one guy who is just a wreck that is bemoaning his luck and saying, fuck me to tears. Then you have another guy who's on the other end of the spectrum, like Daniel at the same time frame, that's basically saying like, oh, because he said this or because he did this, I knew exactly uh, where he was at and I was able to make a pretty light call with this type of hand, yada, yada, yada. Now all the way full circle, we have a product like Poker Out Loud where we have six professionals sitting down that are exhausting their thoughts in real time and it doesn't sound anything like it would have back in the early 2000s, right? It's not... Or even, or even season one. Season even one season is, one yeah. or even season yeah. two. Like, honestly, it just becomes... It's pretty wild. Like, if you just compare season by season by season by season, it just becomes more and more technically sound. And nobody, honestly, especially this last season, is, like, getting outside the box. Like, we're just, like, do I exploit here? Or, like, do we just chill? You know, because everyone's a little bit, like, not wanting to get out of, 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 feel like of too much, you know? Like, out of the box. Do you feel like that's affected the, like, output of the content? And do you think that might have a relation to why people don't like to consume poker content as much anymore? Because I think we need to do as... a poker out loud, no holds bar. Like, that one needs to come back. <laughs> yeah. Where it's just, like... Just Wild fuck West version. You, fuck each other up. Exploits like, only. Yeah, exploits only. Berkey, yeah, that's I, the one. I, I, I think the way to do it is, and maybe we just do this for YouTube, but you just sit a thousand blinds deep. You have three big blinds. The seven deuce game is on, and you play with like a two big blind ante. And do Nobody this, has the small blind that. progressive too. <laughs> I am yeah. holding no Just H, every though. gimmick in the book. The yeah. standing game is Yeah, well. I mean, it's just like, you know, nobody has game. any. Nobody has. No, yeah, we do the standing game on top of it. I think that's a lot of fun. Actually, uh, somebody, I think it was Nick maybe that texted, oh, no, 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 it was Mark Hammond uh, texted me and said, like, I'm in for Poker Out Loud if we do the standing game. And yeah, I think, like, adding these ripples, especially for YouTube where it would be more of an entertaining product than it would be an educational one, I think just, like, blows the doors off. But, uh, you know, to, to button up this whole strategy evolution thing, we're about to show you a clip of Nick Howard, who I do think blends these three layers together that we were talking about, a natural talent, a, a good fundamental game theory understanding, and then mass data analysis that allows him to kind of either lean into the GTO uh, baseline or step out into the exploit based on his, his talent. Lurk's been pretty small, about a third of the pot. I'm going to tell you that hundreds of millions of hands of data say that that particular sizing is overbluffed in this line, in this formation, and on this particular texture. And anything else, I think, trends into the direction of projection. The reason we try to avoid projection is it's not grounded in anything usually except for how you would play the hand in a particular spot, which you then mistakenly apply to your opponent without realizing that you're doing it, and then you end up making messy decisions. So this is a stable decision that's being made versus small bet size where you're getting good pot odds and a later formation on a good texture. Simple as that. Good hand, Bert.
because there was two of them, no. two of him. There was one of you. Like you were, you were dead. Yeah, I was I was heavily outnumbered. But that that's a little preview of uh, this past episode that came out uh, this previous Monday of Poker Out Loud, and I think it is a really great example of the analytical mind married with the exploitative uh, layer of human nature bias, right? So. Nick does a great job there of leaning on all the tools that he's developed, be it the data analysis, the understanding of game theory in that spot, and then not really giving in too much to the meta of it being me and me choosing a size and there being a meaning behind that size. But I think that there are a lot of other examples that we can point to where the latter is a lot more important than the former. There was a particular hand that I played versus Nick in, I think it was season three, where uh, I basically said everything that he was going to do before the action that I took, and he just fell right into it. And it was, you know, to me, that's the art, right? Like, it's this beautiful symphony of me saying that I know the way that Nick thinks, and he's going to have literally just a float in this spot. And now, even though all I have is top pair with some equity, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set him up to try to take it away with that float, and then I'm going to check raise him, and he's going to find a way to put all the money in debt. And that's literally what happened. But that's just largely not No Limit Hold'em in the modern day, right? And my heart breaks a little bit for the loss of the art form. But I'm also like super excited to continually explore from a scientific aspect and un uncover so much more of the game tree that we're so blind to right now. Uh, most importantly, like multi-way and depth just absolutely monkey wrench what we know about this game fundamentally, but the principles still remain true. Equity thresholds, EV, position, um, the, the true equity of your hand and uh, the range versus range comparison, all of that will still be the fundamental backbone with how we make our decisions, regardless of how much the variables around us change. So I, I, I guess I'll, answer, I'll ask you the question directly. Do you think that the secrets are no longer? I think that they are less valuable i think they still exist uh and particularly i think they exist uh to a pretty high degree for live players but i also am not arrogant enough to discredit those who are just fundamentally sound no, uh, definitely guys no one, no one's guys who have that. like thousands of hours of study are just going to make even a live game very challenging mm -hmm. and the biggest issue is that those guys actually just make the live game unbearable and it's no fault of their own but by forcing a live environment into the constructs of what's being studied the small opening sizes the hundred big blind stacks uh the appropriate three bet ranges the aggressive check raise ranges by forcing live poker into that tiny little shell it becomes too slow and boring to play and i think you see that right now at the 1020 game at the bellagio yeah there are just too many strong studied online regs in that game that are unwilling to bend on their on their parameters and because of that the fish don't want to play with them and now the other regs that they're probably earning a win rate off of lose interest because the game is so slow and the game is so foreign to what they're accustomed to there's no cold calling of three but everybody's playing by the rules right and in live poker, that's really problematic because it's so slow that playing by the rules isn't very incentivized. Yeah, I mean, I do play that game quite often. Uh, do try to do some different things, right? There is a big blind ante, there is a straddle. Uh, but 
what you're saying is generally pretty true. Like most of the European kids that come are very strong and, and have a lot of hours of either playing 200 zoom or 500 zoom. And they're not, they're, they're tough. They're very, they're very tough. And usually what happens is like, everyone's playing generally pretty honest against each other. And then everyone goes kind of hood against the weaker, uh, you know, the enthusiast, the enthusiast. Yeah. Maybe a good way to judge the value would be like, who would you rather buy a piece of? Would it be someone who's very, very studied or someone who's has lots of experience, uh, and, but isn't that studied. And I think a lot of times it would probably be the person who's very, very studied. Who I think it depends on the game. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think you're right that the floor is always higher with the person that's very studied. So, like, if we're talking about, like, let's call it a live at the bike game where it's uh, one pro and seven whales, right? Mm -hmm. And you have your choice between a pro like, uh, I'm trying to think of somebody who's, like, pretty talented but pretty unstudied. Um, let's call it Joey Chong. I don't know how much he studies, but I know that he's very good at No Limit Hold'em, and he is very good at running up stacks. So if you have your choice between, like, a Joey Chong or, like, a B-tier grinder who spends like all day five online day. reg or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, basically a no-name 2-5 reg online. Like, who would you rather buy a piece of? Personally, in that spot, in a live arena, I yeah. want Joey all day, every day. Yeah, same. Right? But I also think the floor is a lot higher on the two five online grinder. Like he just doesn't lose ten buy ins ever in this game. Mm -hmm. He also doesn't win ten buy ins, right? That's kind of what you're saying, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah, on average, anyway. Like right, maybe right, he runs hot once in a while, but yeah, makes sense. Well, we've run way over. I uh, pushed my stream back far enough. I really appreciate everybody tuning in today. We tried something new. We're going to be live for the rest of the week. Uh, we're going to try to rein it in. We have a very interesting uh, topic of discussion up for tomorrow. Uh, we're going to try to rehash the Brandy Hawbaker uh, storyline a little bit. It got kind of brought up earlier this week. Uh, a bunch of threads have been shared from the old school 2 plus 2 forums uh been rereading those i remember following it in real time it's just like such a fascinating story so we're going to try to do our best to uh bring shine a little light on that story and maybe uh catch the younger generation up with some of the things of the past that uh it's a little bit of like what that poker. can you tell us a little bit of what that is like is i who, who was brandy at least like give, give people a little bit of a wrinkle yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little bit when we did the Bunny podcast, but basically she was a girl who came onto the scene in, I think, 2006, uh, made a lot of waves online, didn't have, like, tremendous results, but was putting up some results, but was very divisive in the online community, took a lot of hate uh, from, from the online forums, and really led with, uh, like, this sexualized version of herself where she was kind of leveraging that uh, to further her poker career. Uh, ultimately things really spiraled and she eventually did commit suicide. So, uh, I don't want to give too many details because it's been a long time since I've actually scoured through these threads and I want to make sure I don't get anything wrong, but the plan is to, uh, put together a pretty coherent story for tomorrow. And we're going to kind of tell the story of Brandy Harbaker. Sounds good.
All right, that's going to be a wrap for us today. I'm going to go right into my live stream to probably give me five minutes or so, but I believe this video will kick you right over to that live stream. I'm going to be streaming for BetMGM today. Uh, we're going to be playing a, I believe it's a 15K 6 Max, uh, as well as a bunch of cash games. If you want a chance to uh, win some phase tickets into the main event, uh, we're going to be doing something where uh, we'll be randomly picking cash tables and giving uh, tickets to everybody involved. Thank you guys all so much for tuning in to today's slightly lengthy podcast. I hope it was one that you enjoyed. I really appreciated the discussion. Uh, thanks as always to Christian, Brian, Conrad, Melissa, Landon, and Andre for the hard work, diligence, and uh, covering for me when my camera went out. That's going to be it. I'm shouting you out from Pittsburgh. We'll see you guys all tomorrow. Berkey, you're that 5%, just so talented. He's just so talented.